We last time, as you know, talked about trouble. You could say that the message last time in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 was a practical theology of trouble. And this time what we're going to do is continue on the theme of testing, the testing of our faith. Now, we're in the middle, we have an outline here, but I'm not even going to review the outline because we're only going to continue on the main point of the trials that we go through in the Christian life. But before I say anything else, I want to say this. I am very concerned as a pastor of a church in these days about shallowness. And it is apparent to me and this is not your fault or anybody's fault going to church today, but it's apparent to me that we are trained in our society by the system to watch, not to listen. So that even to go to the department store, <laughs> you walk around and there's a video right there. You go to the makeup counter, you ladies, there's a video. You, Take your kid to the teen section and there's a video with a bunch of people jumping around on it, you know, and video everywhere. We're trained to watch, not listen. So what happens then is the repercussions of shallowness. If you cannot listen, how can you change? Because you need to learn the truth of the Word of God in such a way that it alters your life for the better. The truth makes you free. If you've been programmed to watch and not listen, guess what? Just as a general member of the public in America, you're going to come to church with the handicap of not having been trained to really listen. The end result of that is that the general attention span of the public today is very short. 20-second clips on the news, you know, you on Super Bowl Sunday, you've got these 15-second advertisements that cost $8 million, and just they're just explosions that hit you. Try to compete with that by standing up here, you know, a talking head. You're competing against a lot of... You understand what I'm saying? That's why expository preaching isn't popular today. Because people's attention span won't tolerate it. You say, now where are you going with all this? I'll tell you. Last time we talked about trouble in general. We bandied about the terms trials, faith, testing, terms like that. Now today we're going to come back and talk about that again. There is a tendency then with a short attention span to think if we talked about it last time, you've got it. So that you will then drift. Oh, here we go. Trials testing. Yeah, he, got, he covered this last time, so I'm going to drift. But let me suggest something to you. This is not the same message as last time. Last time was a general coverage of trouble and testing. This is more specific. It's a different message. It's different issues, same terms, different details. To grow in the Christian life, you must grow in your ability to listen and to meditate and digest what you hear. Some of you make it very obvious to all the rest of us you have a hard time listening because you sleep so regularly in church. I could point out, just I could point out to you who's going to be out in a few minutes. I really could. And 
those that are going on their way out, they're nervous right now. They'll stay awake maybe five minutes longer this time. But it's a weird dynamic. You have the ones that go out and you have the ones that go farther and farther on the edge of their seat forward into the message the whole time. They're both ends of the spectrum. But what I'm saying is this. We're covering something that is so very, very important. The testing of your faith. Do you understand how important your faith is? I think it's the greatest gift God has given you. On that hangs your salvation. Your faith in the blood of Jesus. So, we come to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We covered that last time. Today we read in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we'll get to the end of that statement next time. Today I want to cover the first half of verse 7. I want to deal with this, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. You see, last time we talked about the fact we're tested by trouble. Now I want to talk about this. We are tested to prove our faith. Tested to prove our faith. That's what it says here, the genuineness of your faith. Now let me just take you through a few thoughts along this line. First of all, this idea, it is the very nature of faith that it be tested. You know, faith is to reach out and grab hold of God and believe things that maybe you didn't believe before. John Murray put it this way, he said, Faith is knowledge passing into conviction which passes into confidence as it relates to God. It's knowledge that passes into conviction which passes into confidence. So if our faith is to grow, it must be exercised so that we can continually, as we move forward, if the truth makes us free, begins with that knowledge of the truth, those become our convictions, which become the confidence of our life in the faith, in the midst of all the trials we face on this earth. Now, your faith, this is kind of foundational, your faith is a gift from God. We've talked about that. But God gives it to you with the intention that you use it. Sometimes I think you have the idea that God gives you the gift of faith so you can be saved. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And sometimes I think we have the idea it begins and ends there. The reality is that's only the beginning. God gives you faith to the end that you would use it so that... You see in the Bible that Romans 1.17 says the just will, what? Live by faith. In other words, okay, in the Christian life, I cannot live without faith. Now, the Bible uses the analogy very often for the Christian of a soldier. You're aware of that, right? There's a whole study in Ephesians 6 on the armor. The idea is that we face this foe, which we have studied, millions, perhaps billions of fallen demons headed up by Satan. We are in a massive warfare. We advance through that warfare by faith. 
We find our post, our place of influence and responsibility and effectiveness in the Christian life essentially by faith. So that faith becomes critical. We must use it. If you're to have on the full armor of God, one of the pieces of the armor is directly tied into faith. It's the shield, right? Whereby we quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We could go on and on talking about the importance of faith. But you have to use it. And you have to somewhere along the line get into the groove with God so you're flowing with Him as He's strengthening your faith and adding to it, not fighting against Him. Where you're sensitive to His touch. It seems to me that this study we're going through is something that ought to send your sensitivity to the touch of God and the testing of God in your life right through the roof. Where you're just ready on every turn that the Lord might be wanting to teach you something and to strengthen your faith. And you're ready on every turn to pass the test that has come your way. We're going to talk about a number of different kinds as we move through this message. But let me give you an example of the fact how you need to use your faith. Could you turn to Luke? Luke 8, to verse 22. Here is Jesus, and he is with his disciples. And it says, Luke 8, 22, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. Now here is a hint. The hint is this. Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. Now Jesus Christ is in that boat with them. He's intending to go to the other side of the lake. One might tend to get a little confidence in the journey that they would arrive at the other side. Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. Okay. Even granted the fact that these fishermen lived on this lake, worked on this lake, knew the unpredictability of the weather, the wind, the waves, and all that can occur in this lake, let us cross over, says the Master. That's a hint, but they missed it. They missed the hint. We've got to learn to watch for the hints from the Master. Verse 23, But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. Now, here is Jesus. It appears he doesn't care. Calm, tired, exhausted from the multitudes. He falls asleep. Very natural. That is another hint that a test is coming. You see, anytime it appears in your life that God doesn't care, pay attention. It's just a little hint that you're entering into a test or it's already begun. Now... In a sense, Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. He has said to us, we're going to cross over to heaven. This journey will end in heaven. Sometimes we so come all undone as to have the idea or imply that we're not going to make it to the other side, to heaven. He is going to take us safely there. Anyway, that's another message. But here they are. They're in the, the lake and this windstorm comes as he falls asleep. Now... You know the Santa Ana winds that we have here? Sometimes they can get pretty hefty. And they blow plants around your yard. And sometimes it sounds like they're going to blow the roof right off your house, right? I don't know about you, but what happens is I hear this whistling. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, Whoa, Oh, the boogeyman's coming, you know? And I, I discovered if, that the little door on my fireplace, the little glass door was open, and if I just shut it, 
If I opened it, shut it. And that only happens when there's a major wind. But sometimes it you know, blew the roof off a house in El Toro one time. And we know about strong winds. Well, picture the worst Santa Ana wind you can ever remember. And on the Sea of Galilee, they're about six to 800 feet below sea level. The, the sea is surrounded by these hills. On the other side is the desert. B- below sea level, the wind comes in off the desert, over the mountains, comes racing down the mountains. It literally hammers on the surface of the lake. It's a volatile, volatile scene in terms of the weather and the waves and all that. That's just exactly what we have here. It's calm, they begin to go across, and suddenly the winds are pounding on the lake. It says, and a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and they were in jeopardy. Now these are not guys that rented the boat for the day type thing. You know, have you ever gone down to Dana Point Harbor? I've done this. And I come in with my wallet and my credit card and I, I get this little aluminum boat with a little motor on the back and I get my Snicker bar and my Coke and my M&Ms and I just putt around the harbor. You know, we're not dealing with guys like that. They didn't rent this boat. These are men lived on this lake. They're big burly guys with calluses on their hand. They're suntan. They're tough men. So when they see water coming in the boat and they're shouting, Master, we're going to perish, you understand the intensity. It's a real trial in their life. But they were already given some good hints for this kind of a trial. They missed them. They came and they woke him saying, Master, we are perishing. And he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging water and they ceased and there was a calm, instant dead calm. But the interesting thing is that after he rebukes the wind, he turns and he rebukes the disciples. And he said to them, where is your faith? Isn't that interesting? Now often he says to them, O ye of little faith. Not this time. Here he says, where is your faith? And the terminology is critical. Why? Because God gives you the gift of faith. He intends for you to use it. So here they are with the gift of faith. The the issue is they're not using it. Where is your faith? You have it. I've given it to you. Let me ask you today, at your point in life right now, where is your faith? You have it if you're a child of God. Where is it? Are you focusing it on Him? Are you moving through your trials using your faith? Or are you like these guys, just sort of spaced out, spun out and disconnected, shouting, help me, in the middle of your problems? You see, You've been given faith to use it. They were given faith to use. Now, the interesting thing here is the grace of God. They really blew this one, didn't they? I mean, how many miracles do you need to see? How many hints do you need to have to know you're going to make it all right? So here they are, and they blew it. But the great thing is this. Even though they messed this thing up big time, and they failed the test, he still calmed the storm. He still protected them. He still took them safely to the other side. And he even used their failure as an opportunity to fill out their understanding and teach them and effectively increase their faith. This is the God we serve. Now get that fixed squarely in your mind and on your heart that even in the times when you blow the trial and you miss the test and you don't pass it, he still goes on to work in your life and teach you 
and bring you around, maybe the long way, but around in the end to a greater faith. This is how God works with you. It's the grace of God in your life. He is, after all, our Father who is in heaven. He's absolutely the perfect, flawless, consummate Father in your life. And He cares for you. And He is your personal trainer. So, here is this faith. The nature of faith implies testing. And we are supposed to use our faith. And even when we don't use it right and we blow the trial, He's there to be gracious. There's a time in the Old Testament where... In Samuel, they went out to battle. And the children of Israel at this time weren't doing well with the Lord. And as a result, their thinking is kind of skewed. And they're losing the battle. So somebody gets the bright idea, hey, we could turn this whole thing around if somebody just gets the Ark of the Covenant. If we bring that thing out here, we're going to win immediately. Because after all, it's the Ark of God. Kind of like the magic box syndrome. You know, so they go get the ark and they bring it out. And what happens is they don't win the battle. Instead, God allows the ark to be captured. So the Philistines take the ark. And they're all excited that they've captured the ark in their mind, the way they thought about gods in those days. They've captured the God of the Israelites, like he lives in the box. So they take the box and they put him as a sign of submission into the temple of Dagon. So Dagon is in there. He's this big statue guy. And uh, the ark's nearby. And they put him in there. And then one of the guys comes back, one of the priests of Dagon. And he comes in, custodian of the temple, whatever. But they come in, and here's Dagon. And he's fallen over on his face. And this is very shocking, you know. So, so they got together. Come on, everybody, let's get Dagon back up. So they put Dagon back up, got him upright again. And uh, they left. They came back in later. And lo and behold, Dagon had fallen on his face again. Well, this time his head had fallen off and his arms had fallen off. So the Philistines, they got all nervous and they said, Oh no, the God of the Israelites is bashing Dagon around. So what, what's going to happen if he decides to bash us around too? If he can bash our God around like this, what in the world might he do to us? Let's get him out of here. You know, he lives in the box. Get him out of here. So they send the box, the Ark of the Covenant, back to the children of Israel. Now, what happened was this all took place around the area of Shiloh and Ebenezer. So there's this failure at Ebenezer with the ark in the battle. Then God in His grace has them send the ark back. They go back out and they begin to have victory against the Philistines again. And it's all the grace of God overturning their failure. Their failure in the test, their failure in the battle, He turns around. And he raises up Samuel, and Samuel begins to lead them. And I'd like you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, if you could, where we find the summary of all this in a statement that Samuel makes. 1 Samuel 7 to verse 11. It says, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, and they pursued the Philistines, and they drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel, Samuel now builds a memorial in 1 Samuel 7, 12. This is something they used to do. Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And notice he called its name Ebenezer. And he put this memorial together, called its name Ebenezer, Signifying this, he says, Thus far the Lord has helped us. I just love to read that. 
Here is a memorial to the helping hand of a gracious God who overturned their defeat, the failure of the test, turned it into victory because he loved them so much. Samuel sets up a memorial to say to everyone who would see it, Our God is a gracious God who helps his people even through their failures. And when they fail the test, he helps them to go on to pass the next one by his grace and his strong hand. John Newton, you know who wrote Amazing Grace? He was contemplating this whole account that I just gave to you, this failure at Ebenezer and how God helped them anyway. And he wrote these words. He said, His love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. That is so good. Each sweet Ebenezer that you have in your life. You see, Ebenezer became a word to the children of Israel that meant the God that helps them in their, their struggles. Each sweet Ebenezer you have, each failure that God has overturned for the good in your life, becomes a testimony to you, a memorial to you, that He's going to see you quite through this whole thing. And if you are not getting the picture now, you're going to have one test after the next for the rest of your life. How skilled are you at passing these tests? How skilled are you at perceiving them? Our God has helped us, says Samuel. This is something intensely personal that goes on between you and God. He is very personally involved in your life. So the very nature of faith implies testing. Let me take you to another thought. That is, the genuineness of your faith comes out through testing. Is it real or is it fake? Peter says in 1 Peter 1.7 that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. This is a big issue. See, God uses tests to prove your faith genuine or not. See, how can you be sure if your faith is real if it hasn't been tested? It's one thing to say, you know, yes, I believe in the Lord. I, I go to church. I have a Bible. I can tell you what I've learned so far. Yeah, I have faith. But here's the issue. Have you so far only gone through situations in life that you could handle very easily without faith? Until your faith is tried, you don't even know if it's real or not. Now, the genuineness issue is, is on your side. God isn't testing you to find out what you're going to do so He can decide if your faith is real or not and you're really going to heaven. God wants to test you so you can discover whether your faith is real or not and you're really going to heaven. It's for your benefit, not His. So, when you read about the genuineness of your faith, understand this. God uses testing in your life to prove to you whether you are a real Christian or a fake Christian, whether you have real faith or fake faith, whether you have only temporary, it's called sometimes sham faith, or the thing that's going to last forever. He talks about a faith here that is much more valuable than gold that perishes. He uses the term perish to contrast the eternality of your faith. So he tests you. And it's like this. You remember in the parable of the sower, there's different kinds of soil. There is that flat, hard ground. It's so hard and rocky 
that when the seed hits that ground, it just sort of bounces and lays there. Jesus said the birds come along and pick it right up. And he said that's the devil coming and grabbing the gospel seed from you. Then there is the soil that's very rocky and stony, but it has a little bit of... It's ground with rock, but a little soil right on top. And then there is the weedy ground, and then there is the fertile ground. The only place you find real faith in the parable of the sower is in the good ground. We've been over this many times. But what I want you to see is this. Everybody starts as that flat, rocky, rock-hard soil where the seeds just bounce. How does God get you to go from that place where you hear the gospel and you're just oblivious to it, you could care less, and the devil just sweeps it from your thinking? How does he get you, because we all start like that, from there to being good ground, to where he saves you and you have real faith that's lasting? He does it by interacting with you personally, and as your knowledge of the Bible, uh, of the gospel grows with preaching, sharing from friends, whatever, he then allows things to come your way to manifest whether or not you have developed, been given, come into, however you want to term it, real faith. So that what Jesus says in Luke 8.13, he says that seed that falls on the shallow soil which has rock underneath, it springs up quickly and then dies. He says, this is the person who responds with joy to hearing the gospel. They seem like they have faith. He says, but in a time of testing, that's his exact words, in a time of testing, they fall away. You don't know if your faith is real until the test come. When it gets hard, when it, life is difficult, shall we say nearly impossible, what do you do? Do you name the name of Christ? Do you seek the Lord in the sense of coming to church, quoting Bible, reading it? But then when the trial hits, is God not even a part of your life? Do you go on a binge and get drunk all the time when the trial hits? Do you go off into drugs when the trial hits? Do you go off into immorality when the trial hits? What do people in the world do with their trouble? That's what they do, right? They drink heavily, they take drugs, they become immoral, whatever, whatever, to find comfort in their trial. The Christian with faith, who has a heart that cries, Abba, Father, goes to God in the trial. Maybe not perfectly, but that's where they go. So one trial comes, you go, oh, Jesus, help me. Oh, Lord, this is so hard. This is so painful, Lord. But I know you've allowed it. What is it you want to teach me? You've got my attention, obviously, Lord. I've lost everything. What is it you want to tell me, Lord? You're my provider. Now, I'm looking at you to take care of me. He takes you through. He provides. The trial's over. Wow, you know, the Lord is so faithful. He's so good. He hasn't failed me. It's like I always heard. Another trial comes and you respond again. You see, that, that's what faith does, real faith. If you have faith that's not real, the trials come, they hit, and you react like the world does again and again and again. If you're like that, then your faith isn't real. You see, the trials show you whether your faith is real or not. Faith is a gift. It's to be used. Those who have it and use it in their trials will know eventually that they are really God's children. I read about a young man who worked for years. He wanted to establish himself as a peach grower, and he invested all of his money in a peach orchard, and he was excited because it was blooming abundantly, and he thought he was going to have a great crop. But then came a frost, 
And the frost came and all of a sudden the pastor down the church noticed that this guy wasn't coming to church anymore. He had skipped many Sundays. So finally he went to him and he said, Hey, how come I haven't seen you? And the guy responded very discouraged and he said, I'm not coming back. I don't come anymore and I'm not coming back. And he said, Why? He said, Do you think I can worship a God who loves me so little as to allow a frost that would kill all my peaches? I cannot serve a God like that. I cannot love a God like that. And I can't believe in a God like that. No, I'm not coming back to church. The old minister looked at him for a moment and finally he said kindly, Young man, he said, You need to realize someday that God loves you a lot better than he does your peaches. And he knows while your peaches would do better without frost, it is impossible to grow the best men without frost. His object is to grow the best men, not peaches. You see, he's not after your peaches. He's after you and your eternal life. And he uses difficulty to test and to prove your faith. This young man proves peach harvest. His faith was sham. And it was evidence because, boom, he was gone when the problem hit. It's exactly what Jesus talked about. In the time of testing, they fall away. So, just as the fire separates the gold from the dross, the real from the counterfeit, suffering and trials and testing separate true faith from superficial profession. Let me ask you a question today. Are you somebody that lives in doubt? Do you have doubt in your life about your eternity? Do you doubt that you're really going to heaven? Let me put it another way. I've heard of so many deaths lately. Just every side. It's all around us. If you were to die today, are you positive you're going to go to heaven? You say, well, hold on. Now, you know, I'm not going to die today. And I do have my doubts. And listen, every person that ever died, probably the majority of them thought they weren't going to die today. I heard, I talked to a pastor the other day. He said, I just came from the deathbed of a man. And I told him right to his face, you are going to die perhaps today or tomorrow. What have you done about your soul? And the guy said, no, I'm not going to die today or tomorrow. He said, look, look at your chart. You're dying. And he said, you mean you really think I'll die today or tomorrow? He said, yes. And he said, do you believe you're going to heaven? He said, well, I don't know. I haven't been working on it too much. He said, fella, you're running out of time. Guy's dead now. He died that day. The good news is he came to the Lord right before he died. Now, are you going to go to heaven if you die today or tomorrow? When, do you have doubts? Let me tell you something. There was a time in my life when I doubted whether I would go or not. There was a time in my life when I was nervous. If the rapture comes today, am I going to go? You know, <laughs> I don't doubt anymore. Really. I'll tell you why. It's very practical. All of the hardships that have come my way in life... And they seem to me, as probably with you without number, have proven to me that the faith that I have is real. Because I'm still here. After all the trials that I have gone through and all the people I've seen come and go from the Christian life, I'm still here. And I know that the faith that I have is a gift God gave me and He has maintained that. And I see it's indestructible when it's real in the life of Job. All the trials have proved to me my faith is real. I do not doubt anymore that I'm going to heaven when I die. In fact, I can't wait. Rapture, death, whatever, I'm excited to go. Are you? See, if you doubt, 
then you need more trials to prove to you whether your faith is real or not. Peter says that once you get to the point, your proven faith will be more precious to you than anything else in life. You see, at that time, gold was the most precious thing there was. Now it's the 90s, you know, we have plutonium and a lot of other cool things. But gold at that time was it. There was a time when I really wanted to be rich and wanted a lot of things in life. But when I came to the place where I no longer doubted about my eternity and my relationship with Christ and where I'm going when I die, suddenly those things lost their magic. I value my proven faith more than anything else in life. And it is God's design and He's working with you to bring you to the same place if you're not already there yet. You see, your faith is tested to prove whether it is genuine or not. Let's move on here. Your faith as a child of God, when it is real faith, is tested that it might increase in strength. And really there is no other way that it can. Now follow me on this thought. The Bible, Paul talks about in Timothy about how in God's house, and he uses the analogy of a house, there's vessels fit for the master's use. All kinds of vessels in a house. He basically says there's some vessels that are common, clay pots, whatever. Then there are gold and silver precious vessels. And uh, he talks about the idea of being fit vessel for the master's use. The only way to become a fit vessel for the master's use is to have your faith strengthened because it's those that are strong in faith that are on the cutting edge of the advancement of God's kingdom. We read yesterday about a guy in Pilgrim's Progress. Some of the men that were there know his name was called in Pilgrim's Progress, Little Faith. And this guy, Little Faith, got beat up one day by three rogues. They came along and all these characters in Pilgrim's Progress. I love these names because you remember them. And Little Faith got beat up by three rough fellas. And he got up and he went on his way. And, and Christian records how that Little Faith went and told everybody that would listen how he had been beat up. And how much he had lost. And that that's all he did the rest of the time. He just went everywhere telling everybody how much he'd been beat up and how much he had lost. I remarked to a friend the other day, I said, you know, there are certain sectors of the church that have gone at least the last decade or so capitalizing on that reality. That there are those people that want to do nothing more than go through their Christian life telling everybody how they've been beat up. And oh, they've just lost everything. Oh, it's just I hurt so much. And, and they never get beyond that. It is not God's design for you to go through your Christian life like that. And that's the point that is made in, in the book there in Pilgrim's Progress. Your faith is to be strengthened by trials. That means this. If your trials are only causing you to become more sad and complain more to everyone around you, you're failing one test after the next. And know this, it often takes time to be strengthened. Matthew Henry once said that if we cry to God for the removal of the oppression and the affliction that we are under and it is not removed... The reason is not because the Lord's hand is shortened or his ear is heavy, but because the affliction has not yet done its full work. That is great insight. 
You remember in the book of Job, we have the, the blessing of hindsight to read the account. The devil comes before God, the trial hits Job's life, we see the trial begin. We watch it develop. We see him lose his flocks, his herds, his houses, his servants. We see all this. We see him lose his children. We see him lose his health. We see him contract what is possibly elephantiasis where your limbs swell up and puff up and it's extremely painful. We see him uh, taking pieces of pottery and scraping pus from his body as the thing rolls on. He's puffy and he's pussy and he's lost... It's a tough time in his life. And yet, as you watch the account, when God is done, God's done. And it's almost like you're, you're going, this is never going to end. You're looking at how many more chapters of this can I take? Well, hey, what about poor Job? You're just reading. He went through it. You know? Finally, you skip ahead and you, here's the end. I'll back up so we're turning. All right, a whirlwind and God talking to Job. When God's done, it's done. He's done. When, the, when God is done with you, the test, it ends. It ends. There's an end to the trial. But the end, it's not over till it's over. So if you're crying out to God in this thing, and it hasn't ended yet, you can safely conclude that he's going to teach you a few more things and he will then end it. The mature Christian who understands what we're learning will take that approach and that is exactly the maturity that Matthew Henry was speaking with when he said that. J.C. Ryle said the tools that the great architect intends to use are use much are often kept long in the fire to temper them and fit them for work. Do you want to be used by God? Oh, yes, you say. Do you want to be really used by God? Absolutely. If I say to you right now, would you like to be used to reach many people for Christ? I mean, in whatever way your giftedness would determine, what would your answer to that be? Well, I don't know. I'm hungry. You know what I mean? Come on. (laughs) I'm going to let you go in a minute. So... If you said, yeah, you know, I'd like to reach many people with my life, know this, then you'll have to go through many trials. Those that reach many people go through many trials to fit them for the work. I used to wonder, you know, God, you know about some of my jobs, right? I used to wonder, what is this all about? You know, over here in Alaska, over here in New York, up here in Minneapolis in the dead of winter, cleaning toilets, down here, you know, scraping crab guts off the thing, and over here raking the primaries in Irvine, and, you know, driving this truck, and taking bags up to room as a bellman, over here's a dishwasher, busboy, over, I mean, what is this, you know, and going for an interview, and the guy's going, what is wrong with you, I mean, are you the world's most unstable man? Perhaps you could get a job at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. (laughs) I used to wonder about all that. And at one point I got very, very angry at God. I don't know, maybe 13 years ago or something. And I said, how could you do this to me? I came to you in faith. I followed you in faith. I made my decisions in faith. Look at this thing. What a mess, my life. This is what you called me for? Thanks. Hey, love it, you know. (laughs) But you see, I'm settling in now, and I'm realizing, well, 
It seems to me that with a taste of a little bit of a taste of everything in life, I can relate to more people. And uh, so now I'm just kind of flowing with it and feeling like it makes a lot more sense than I thought at one time. And now it seems to fit perfectly what I do. So, you know, along the way it's a little rough. And um, it also gives me a forecast for the future that there'll probably be many, many more, uh, hopefully not jobs, I'd like to just keep preaching, but many more <laughs> trials. Because I want to reach many people. In fact, the answer to my question that I just asked you is, I'd like to reach as many people as I can before I die. One way or the other, I'd like to have as much influence to lead as many people in the kingdom of heaven as I can before I die. To take as many people with me as I possibly can. And to, to build up as many as I can along the way and lead them closer to Christ. Our faith is strengthened through our trials. And if God wants to really use you, He's going to really try you. You see that in Abraham and Moses, and we could go on and on and on with it. But in the end, know this. You know that verse we're so familiar with in Matthew 25, 21, where Jesus says, Well done, good and what? Faithful servant. It is the man or woman who has tested God and been tested by God. That's the individual that's going to hear those words. The one that has tested God and found him true. The one who has been tested by God and been shown to be true. That's the one that's going to hear those words from Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, you know, I'm going so slow on Peter because this means so much to me personally. And so that what I now realize is that it is impossible to give you an accurate estimate of the value of my personal proven faith. It becomes the most important thing in your life. Because it's there that your, your heart is focused on Christ. It's the center of your walk with God and your eternity. So we're tested by trouble. We learned that last time. We've been talking today about the fact we're tested to prove our faith. I want to take you to one other thought and then we're going to close. We are tested. This is the unanticipated thing and I think often overlooked thing. We are tested often by good things. See, we've been focusing on how we're tested by trouble, trials, unexpected crisis, emotional trauma, on and on and on. I want to shift now and say this. We are also tested in our faith by good things. And I think we often fail the test in this area. Because we get all equipped for the bad things. Then we are fa- we're passing over there. But now we're failing in the test that comes through the good things. You say, well, what on earth could that be? Well, how about this? The presence of God in your life. It is quite a thing to pass the test of the presence of God in your life. And I don't mean your salvation. I mean this. If you draw near to God, the Bible says, He will draw near to you. So, you come in, Oh God, I want to know you. Lord, I just want to be near to you. Jesus, settle down and be in home in my heart like Paul said in the feet. Oh Lord, I love you so much. I just want to know you. Oh, let me be near to you. Suddenly you're nearer to Him in your life than you've ever been. And you discover... He wants to be the center of your life, the Lord of your life. He's starting to change things. And suddenly he says, now, uh, this area over here is going to have to go completely. Uh, This whole section of the house is going to have to go. And we're going to rebuild this. Now, wait a minute. Now, hold it. And all of a sudden, in your nearness to God, you find 
He wants to make some major changes and you are not ready to make those changes. In fact, you flat out don't want to. Now, that's a test. And how many fail that test? Oh, they're pressing in hard after God, reading their Bible, attending church, seeking the Lord. And as they get near to Him, they find He wants to change them. And then they find they don't want to change and they back off from God. Have you failed any tests like that in your walk with God? I have. That's failing the test of the presence of God. That's, a, that's where you fail the test with the greatest thing possible. Or how about this? The Word of God. Do you understand that this Bible, the breadth, the depth of the whole teaching that is here, is so good... The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. I mean, it's sweeter than honey and on and on. And there's so much here for us. And yet your faith is tested intensely by the Word of God. One of the best things in your life is the Word of God. And yet your faith is tested by it. For example, you read of how He helped them in spite of the fact they were failing. Oh, I want to hear more of that. Thank you, Lord. Boy, that's exactly what I needed after this week. Thank you, Jesus. You know what a fellow needs in church. Thank you, Lord. But then you go on and you encounter something else in the Bible and it just nails you. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And you find here the Bible says something about this thing in your life, and you don't want to let it go. And now you're facing the test of the Word of God. Or whether it's reading or hearing it preached. That happens, doesn't it? And you look at Jesus, you remember when He fed the 5,000? Can you imagine what that was like? You're hungry, your stomach's growling. You're hearing Jesus. It's just a great day. You've seen healings, but now your stomach's growling. Kind of like right now. I hear it. And you know how distracted you can get. Kind of like you're getting. And so here they're all hungry out in the wilderness with Jesus. And he says, don't worry, everybody. And he starts passing out hot, fresh bread from heaven. It's miracle. It's wonder bread. And so they all partake of this wonder bread. Can you imagine what a thrill that would be? I think I'd save a little piece of it, just put it in a jar or something. This is miracle bread, you know. So they ate that and they ate the miracle fish. So they're all excited. That would be one of the greatest days of your life. So Jesus leaves and he goes back across the lake. He really worked this lake, you know. He got so much practical use out of this lake. So he goes back across the lake. They go running around the lake to catch up with him. They get over there and what they want is more bread. But Jesus knows that. What he wants from them is to change their lives. So these people are called disciples in the Bible at this point. All these people are called disciples. The Greek is mathetes. That means they're learners. That's disciple. They're learners. They've been following him along learning. So he starts to bear down in his teaching and he says, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, effectively saying... Give your whole life to follow me. You can't be my disciple. And all of a sudden, the Bible says, they were offended at him. And they started grumbling in the crowd and they said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear this? You see, the Word of God, which is such a wonderful, good thing, is often such a point of great testing in your life. 
And oh, you want to hear the loving parts and the encouraging parts, but when there's a demanding part, oh, this is a hard saying. Who can hear this? So they all went away, except a little tiny group of them. And Jesus turned to that little group and he, he said, Are you guys leaving too? And they said, Are you kidding? <laughs> Whatever they don't understand, we know this. You have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere no matter what. And they passed the test when the entire crowd, the rest of it, failed. I've seen so many people come and go in the Christian life. So many, when they hear some straight teaching from the Word, they're offended. They say, this is a hard saying. Who wants to hear this? So they go and have their ears tickled elsewhere. And what I want to say to you today is, the Word of God is a good thing. It will examine your life. It will search your life. This book knows you better than you know yourself. It'll put the finger on your sin. It will expose your sin to you. It will expose your faith to you. It does everything you need for you. It's good. Don't fight it. Don't run from it. Embrace it. One brother told me after the second service, he said, Man, I'm challenged and shocked and encouraged and... Feel loved and all at once from the message. And I thought, wonderful. That's what the Bible does to you. It's great. I mean, it just keeps you feeling alive, you know. You're just right there. It's kind of like you feel after a good workout at the gym, right? You come out of there, man, you're hurt. But you're exhilarated at the same time, right? And the next day, maybe two days later, you, you just feel so good. And you remember, why do I feel like this? Oh, well, I ran three miles and I worked out. And, oh, no wonder. I think I'll do that again. You understand it's good for you. We're tried by these good things in our life. Please identify that and embrace the flow of it. Let's go in another direction. We're tried by good things in our life in this way. Not only the presence of God and the Word of God, but how about just blessings in your life? For example, if God gifted you to sing, then you're going to face a test, many testings with that voice. I don't need to tell you of how many people, have you seen it, that have been gifted by God and we knew them as singing the songs of Zion, but now they're on MTV. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to close in too much further on that. But what happened was they took the gift that God had given them, they were blessed, they got the accolades of God's people, then the world came around. And the world said, you can make millions with this gift. And they failed the test and they sing the songs of the world now. Or how about God just blesses you with a lot of money? You say, may he do so and may I never recover. Now seriously, <laughs> how about, you know, one person will fail in poverty, 50 will fall in riches. Sometimes God blesses us and we fail to handle it properly. So do you understand how good things can be a point of testing in your life? These things, I believe, are so critical, so crucial. And if we can understand them and work them through in our thinking, my, I'm telling you, your life will gain a consistency and a stability. It's the people that don't understand these things that are roller coaster Christians. It's the people that really understand these things and grow in them that are able to flow with the difficulties of life and the plan of God all at the same time. You know, one of the things about a martial arts 
expert, someone like Raul Reese, he's a kung fu master. Don't mess with Raul, I'm telling you, I mean it. Uh, one of the things about a kung fu master or a martial arts master is they learn to flow with the energy of their opponent for their own victory. Somewhere along the line that we see we fight in the Christian life, we've got to flow with the energy of our opponent, our difficulties, and realize our Father in Heaven is our trainer, our master trainer. And He is wanting to use all these things to test and to prove and to strengthen our faith and to move us on into Christ's likeness and usefulness and blessedness. And in terms of your own personal joy, get you to the place where you don't doubt about your faith anymore. You know you're going to heaven so that inheritance becomes a fixed reality. The anticipation of it becomes extremely strong. It's consistent. Where you look is critical. And thus, the reciprocal effect of a proven faith is a continuous anticipation of the hope of heaven which provides a consistent joy. And the joy of the Lord is what? Your strength. So your faith is so important. Let God test it. Watch for Him to test it. Don't miss the tests. Make sure you seek to pass them. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, God. You're so good to us. It's so amazing, Lord, to study your word and to understand that there are so many things here that even we have never even thought through and then to think them through and to be blessed in the process, we thank you, Lord, so much. Lord, I pray for all these people here today that you would bless them richly, that each one would know the joy of the Lord that is their strength, that each one would begin, myself included, Lord, to grow in their understanding of how personal, intensely personal, this whole process of the testing of our faith is. We're not just dealing with circumstances hitting our life, but behind it all is a loving God molding us and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ and taking the truth and setting us free with it. Oh God, help us to keep these things ever and always upmost in our thinking. And we will give you all the glory as we partake of the joy and consistency that you have for us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.